Hello everyone, welcome to episode 16 of Wake Up Call. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about economics, the labor market, and the future of work. And to do this, we have a special guest. His name is Martin Hoss. Uh, he's a full professor of economics and institutions at the Faculty of Law, Economics and Governance at Utrecht University. His research focuses on labor markets, including technological progress, labor market intermediation, inequality, and institutions. His award-winning research is published in international peer-reviewed journals, books, and magazines. He's a regular speaker at international conferences in the areas of innovation, productivity, economic growth, labor markets, and so on. He's also an award-winning teacher and has taught courses on European macroeconomics, economic growth, and labor economics at various schools and organizations. He is currently coordinating the Future of Work initiative at Utrecht University and is involved in various initiatives by the European Commission, national policy institutes, and multinational corporations. We're very excited to have him on and welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So to just kind of introduce listeners and viewers a bit more uh, to you, uh, while researching you, it is so, like we, we find a quote about you from Utrecht University that says that the labor market and institutions create prosperity, but are also a source of social inequality. And you say that this kind of trade-off is central to your research. And I felt that this is so important to many young people and students nowadays, especially who are just entering our economy and who want to be the winners rather than the losers in it. And I feel like a lot of them are uncertain about the future of their work. Also, many young people feel like they don't like the old nine to five model. They want to work independently for themselves or they sort of critique the fact that a lot of the times the nine to five model becomes a sort of 24-7 model because of the technology. You're always sort of bringing your work back home uh, on your phones or laptops. So there's a lot of these kind of uncertainties or critique about the way we work nowadays. So maybe you could tell us a bit more about the Future of Work initiative that you do and coordinate at Utrecht University and what is it about, uh, what are its goals and how does it imagine the future of work? No, that's a, that's a, that's a super question. So, the the initiative that I'm um, I co-founded with some colleagues in Utrecht, it's called the Future of Work, which isn't a very original name. And there's many initiatives that have popped up uh, the last decade that are called Future of Work or Work of the Future or uh, something related. And I think it it has to do with a, a new kind of wave of you could call it technological anxiety that you know with the breakthroughs in artificial intelligence for example that we've seen in the last uh, 10 15 years um, people are concerned about you know what it, and, and companies are concerned about you know what is it what does it do to jobs uh, workers are concerned about will i lose my job and if not will the contents of what i do on the job will that change and you know that that brings with it a lot of um, uncertainty, and I think that's one of the reasons why 
um, there is this kind of new wave of technological anxiety. I mean, in, in history, we have had previous episodes uh, of technological anxiety. And I think, so I think it's always good to keep in, in, in the back of your mind that you know, at the end of the day, we think that technology is, is, is good for the average worker. So one of the, the, the strongest relationships that exist in, in economics since around 1800 is that um, there is a, a very strong positive correlation between our rise in living standards uh, for the average you know, person um, and innovation technology. And so we've had since 1800, we've had you know, different technologies. You know, we had first had steam, then we had electricity, uh, combustion engines, uh, then, you know, more recently we've had ICT, computers, uh, and in the last couple of years, artificial intelligence. And, you know, through these different kind of waves of technological progress, we have seen that living standards in the long run have arisen for the, for the average worker. Now, of course, you know, that's an average. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone is, is going to, to, to be a winner. Um, and one of the concerns that we have in, uh, with, the, with kind of like the, the ongoing um, episode of, of, let's call it, you know, for short artificial intelligence is that, you know, it, it might really uh, automate a lot of what we do. Um, and, you know, that might make it possibly a game changer relative to what computers did 20 years ago or what electricity did um, 100 years ago. And so I think that's, that's also where most of the, the research that we do um, here, in, here in Utrecht about the future of work is, is focusing on. So focusing on you know, is artificial intelligence, is it a game changer in terms of uh, you know, inequality? And do we have the, the, the institutions in place to kind of, do we, do we understand the impact of artificial intelligence on labor markets, uh, including inequality? And do we have the institutions in place to make sure that especially younger generations um, will be better off, uh, not just on average, but also you know, in terms of, of you know, less inequality or at least not an increase in inequality? So this sort of goes with the idea of, of job polarization, which is something that I know you've uh, written extensively about. So within job polarization, this is just for our listeners, it's basically the, the disappearance of sort of middle skill jobs. Uh, a lot of people look at auto workers to be like an example of a middle skill job that has sort of disappeared in the developed world that has been either automated or offshored. Um, is this period of job polarization something that you see as, as permanent? Is it something that you see as just a temporary episode? And if it's not permanent, where do those middle skill jobs lie in the future? You know, so that's, that's not a great question. So one of the, the projects that I did in the past, as, as you mentioned, is we documented this pattern of, of job polarization for, for advanced economies. Um, from you know between 1980 and, and uh, 2015 or 2010, and you know kind of like the 
the interest, the academic interest in that project was in part because it kind of posed a puzzle to our, our thinking at the time of how technology impacts the labor market. Um, and, you know, that's kind of like, you know, the academic interest and, and, and kind of like the paradigm has shifted in terms of how we think about the, the, um, the impact of technology on the labor market. Now, setting that kind of academic interest aside um, and coming back to your question, like, is it permanent or not? It's not permanent. So the, if you go back before 1980, um, you see that there has been, there have been periods when uh, there was a rise in the middle class. So if you think of the, the industrial revolution in, in the late 19th century, uh, we basically had a kind of like employment in agriculture was falling and, and there was you know, a rise in, in employment in manufacturing, which was better paid. Also, it required some level of education. So you'd kind of, you know, and, and that kind of was the rise of the middle class sort of. Um, and, you know, that was also in part driven by uh, technology. We, we with, with steam engines and then electricity allowed us to kind of you know, build factories. Um, and, you know, we had like, you know, people moving from, from the countryside to the cities where the factories were and, and, and that kind of um, was the start of, of like middle class. But also at the same time, we, we had the, the, the proper institutions supporting that, 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 that mobility of workers from the countryside, from agriculture to into manufacturing, such as uh, an increase in education. Because you have to know, you, know, you have to know how to read and write. If you want to know how a machine operates, you have to be able to read manuals, etc. So certainly there has been there, there has been a period before the 1980s when there was not job polarization, but the opposite, when there was this, the rise of a middle class. And also looking into the future, there's now so I, I said that artificial intelligence is relatively new, um, and it, it's actually if if I if I say artificial intelligence. If we say artificial intelligence today, we mainly mean methods of machine learning. So I'm not talking about you know, artificial general intelligence or machines that think like humans. We can have a, a discussion about that also. But just machine learning uh, is what most artificial intelligence today does and based on neural networks and computer vision, et cetera. Now, there's some research that then says, well, if you look at what are that kind of artificial intelligence can do, the task that it can do, it might actually be um, not be, it might actually be better at automating the tasks that are done by the higher, higher educated, so what we do in business services and, and, and what professionals do, um, more than it, it, it is like robots uh, being good at automating uh, middling jobs, like you know the, the machine operators in, in, in car manufacturing, so car assembly line workers, for example. And so there is this real concern when I said that AI could be a game, a game changer. There is this real concern that we go from, from job polarization, which is like a U-shape in relative employment changes over time with you know, a disappearing middle and growth at, at, at the end and at the, in the very low wage shops and very high wage shops that actually, you know, that might turn into um, 
yeah, like like a like a hockey stick. So so that you know, it, it's actually also the growth in the very um, high wage jobs done by relatively educated people um, that AI will be able to automate. And that again, you know, also looking towards the future means that job polarization is is not something that we we should expect is is permanent. Um, but it could it could well change because of um, AI, uh, for example. This is really interesting, and uh, I myself have uh, thought about AI and like the benefits of it, but also the dangers of it for people recently, and how perhaps right now many of us are only thinking about the benefits, but not really thinking about how can this affect so many people in the future. So. Do you think that we should regulate AI in this sort of sense to prevent job losses in the future? Or do you think that this is sort of natural and we will just adapt to it as time goes? Uh, sorry, I think we, you know, that's a great question. So I think we really need to regulate. And we are, we are you know, especially in Europe, I think we're trying to, to do that. Um, you know, we might not be doing it fast enough, but there is this real um danger that um if we just let ai be developed and implemented that it does not have this the the societal impact that that we think is best and um so there's interesting research done by some people in the us where they um we don't know much about ai yet so you know we, we trying to collect data on, on AI. So what they did is they added questions to the, um, the annual business survey um, about, you know, and they asked firms like, you know, do you adopt AI and why do you adopt AI? And what you see then is that it's actually a relatively small fraction of firms that are adopting AI, like you know, between you know, around three, 4% of firms but it's mainly the large firms. So in terms of workers exposed to AI, you're talking about not four or 5%, but you're talking about 25, 30% of workers are employed in firms that adopt AI. And then they also ask, you know, why firms adopt AI? And one of the main reasons is to automate processes. And so what that means is that apparently the incentives today in, in the private kind of sphere um, the incentives today to innovate are such that ai is geared towards automating processes so so firms mainly adopt ai to automate processes and you know if we kind of let that go unmanaged um, that might hurt workers a lot more than you know we think is 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 desirable from a, from a more societal point of view and so that's where i think we should try to, to regulate AI towards, you know, among other things, um, you know, questions like, you know, can we not develop AI that complements workers rather than you know, being focused on automating processes and automating workers? And there's other issues, right? So it's not just um, job loss that is important in regulating AI. I mean, there's also ethical concerns, there's privacy concerns. Uh, you know, as I said, AI is it's about machine learning and, and what makes machine learning work and why it has become so popular in the last five to 10 years is because we, we now have the machines that are powerful enough to process big data and we have access to these big data. And that's what machine learning does. So machine learning is just 
uh, a prediction tool that uh, based on statistical methods is using data to make better predictions than we can as humans. Um, and so that's, I think, you know, that, that's also why privacy and how we deal with data, how we regulate data and data sets and access to data um, is, is so important. And then there's other concerns like, you know, social media, echo chambers in social media, um, and how, how it, you know, how it even influences our, our democratic processes. So I think there's a lot that we need to, um, that we need to, to think about, um, and, and if necessary, um, we need to manage. And another way of, of looking at it is to, um, there's this very interesting work by uh, Joel Mokir. He's, he's an economic historian, um, at North, at uh, Northwestern. Um, and, so I said that, you know, since 1800, about 1800, one of the, the strongest relationships in, um, in economics is between innovation and our living standards, real wages. And so Joel's point is that, well, you know, that's true. But, you know, what's also true is that, you know, there were a lot of innovations before 1800 that did not result in, in rising living standards. And so his whole take is that you know you not only need the innovation, but what we've also managed to, to do since 1800 is to have the right institutions in place. We understand what technology can do to society. We understand it better, and you know we've been able to manage you know the the impact of of, of technology on society well enough to make sure that you know innovation has led to rising living standards. Such as you know, as I said, in, in 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 during the period of the Industrial Revolution, we've also built you know, first elementary schools, then high schools and universities, um, and that's an institutional change that kind of accommodated um, the the um, the benefits of technological progress uh, way back when. And so I think today we have to do the same. And um, there is there is a risk that if we if we don't understand what AI will do to jobs and, and society at large, um, that we, we, we don't reap all the benefits of, of, of in the potential of AI. And there might be you know, large chunks of losers on the labor market, for example, as you said in the very, at the very beginning. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say that probably on AI, we could have a completely different episode because there's just so much to talk about in this sphere. Uh, but also talking a bit more about the job losses that you mentioned, um, we see a different issue also uh, where right now we see a trend where even the most intro level jobs such as secretaries require a university degree. Um, so most students, I feel like, who can let themselves do so, study for high-paying jobs, like which require certain technological skills, while the part of the population without a higher education are usually left without jobs that can't be outsourced or automated, like we talked about. And this has also affected everyone without a four-year degree. Uh, even research in the U.S. estimates that between the, 18, uh, the 1980s and 2015, real wages for non-college workers fell in six of the eight biggest cities and minority populations have seen the biggest income loss. So 
when we talk about the universities having this huge effect on people being able to find jobs in the future, what can be said about this increasing income uh, uh, gap for the middle class workers? And how can we use universities to be a tool rather for the improvement of people's um, income and for the improvement of their livelihoods rather than the opposite effect? So that, that's that's a that's a super super question. So um, I think what you describe in terms of wages and wage losses for unskilled workers, so real wage losses for unskilled workers since 1980s, is something that we mainly see in in the U.S., where we, where we do think that uh, wage inequality has gone up a lot more than in in, in um, European countries. Uh, which you know in european countries i think technology has 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 kind of translates itself in differently um or, you know has, has transforms itself differently in its impact in on the labor market but so it's it's actually true that for the us and this is this is really amazing um if you think about it that so an, an unskilled worker and a worker with with um a high school degree and, and nothing more um, today, the real wage that she earns is actually less or just as much as an unskilled worker was earning uh, back in, in, um, in uh, 1980, 1970. So for those people, there has not been any rise in living standards over the past 40, 50 years, which is, which is really... Um, Striking. I think that's 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 a real concern, and um, so the the problem. So, so when I was doing my PhD, I was that was in the in the early two thousands. I was in, doing my PhD in in the, in the London School of Economics, and I, I wrote the first paper with my advisor Alan Manning on job polarization, and um, that was also at the time when. In, in the UK, I don't know whether you, you, you know or remember this, that in the UK, we had the, the Labour government uh, and its third way, which was you know, very popular and, and very successful at the time. And one of the kind of flagships of, of their program was also, I think it was called education, education, education. And so the idea was we should give more kids um, higher education. And Alan and I, we said, you know, about the same time that that debate about education, education, education was going on, we kind of came with our picture of job polarization. And we said, well, you have to be a little bit careful because there's also a rising demand in the labor market for people that are doing, um, you know, you don't need a lot of skills to wait rooms in a restaurant or, um, uh, sorry, wait tables in a restaurant or clean rooms in a, in 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 a hotel. Um, so so in, you know, in, they're low paid because we can all do it. It's some sort of eye hand foot coordination that we all learn as kids, uh, and that's why you know there's there's plenty of supply of 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 skills to you know uh, wait tables in a restaurant, but uh, technology cannot do them yet. So so that's why they cannot be automated. And and so there's an increase in in People. So if you look at the, the employment shares of people in low-wage jobs, mainly in low-paid services, um, it has risen over time. 
Now, and so Alan and I said, well, you have to be a little bit careful kind of pushing everyone um, to, towards a college degree, because first of all, many of, of, of the students won't be able to, to do it. I mean, it's, and also it's actually not necessarily true that this is what the labor market needs. Now, what we also didn't want to say is that um, we should stop educating kids, right? So, and I think that the, you know, this was the early 2000s and I think our, our insights have developed since then also based on, on research done for the US like people like David Deming and so on, who say, who kind of, their point is like, look, we, we, the labor market not only needs, and I'm paraphrasing here, programming skills. So, you know, college kids that can program Python or whatnot. The labor market also needs a lot of workers that are very good in things that computers are relatively bad at, such as social skills, interactive skills. Um, and so I think that what universities could do or what our educational system could do, and not just universities, is to, um, at all levels of education, focus more, for example, on social skills or interactive skills, um, emotional skills, which is really something that the labor market needs, um, but that, you know, because, but that technology cannot do. So, so this is something that workers will be, will be, there will be a demand for those kinds of skills, um, even in, even in, in 10, 20 years time. And these are not skills that you only need in high paid jobs. I mean, you know, I, I, I really enjoy being, if, if I go out eating, um, I really enjoy, you know, if, if I have a good waiter who can make a joke, make a joke and, you know, that is a very pleasant person to communicate with. And so I, I think that the message is not that we should educate more necessarily. Um, I mean, there, there is there is a, a need for 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 more programmers and so on. So I mean, so I think we we need more programmers. We need more, uh, for example, women in tech jobs, etc. Um, but there's also I think a, a large group of people that we have to be really realistic. Not everyone can go to college. Um, that cannot go to college. But also for them, I think there is there is an, um, a demand for for skills, uh, which is not the programming skills. Um, but it's 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 the sort of interactive communication skills um, that are very important uh, in in many service oriented jobs, for example. But it's it's a big agenda. So I think for for our educational system, the the, the challenge is just is is uh, there is there is there is a big challenge there to uh, try to adjust to to that reality. Okay, so now I want to change gears and talk a little bit more looking forward into the future. We talked about one challenge for future labor markets, which was AI. And I think another one that a lot of people um, my age are getting an anxiety about is, is the idea of, of climate change completely upending everything that we, that we know about labor markets. Um, of course, it seems clear that most countries are looking to move towards the path of decarbonization. But of course, at the same time, that may further increase the job polarization. Because I know in Canada, there's hundreds of thousands of people working in our oil patch. But of course, you know, the long-term plan is eventually that we're gonna move off of that and go to a more, 
green economy, but those are a lot of people that often don't have skills that would easily apply to other programs. So people are suggesting all sorts of things for this, as they are with, with AI and, and the way that we deal with it. Some people are suggesting that, you know, we get retraining programs, but those don't seem to be super effective at doing their job. Others are suggesting that we go for the basic income method that allows people to transition into different jobs. But I think the concern is that there may not be, that they just won't have the skills required in this current economy. Like, of course, the type of person that goes on to become an oil patch worker is very different than the type of person that goes on to become a programmer. How do we readily transition these people into a future economy? That's 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 a that's a that's a great question. So, um, I think in general, training programs have been relatively efficient. Um, now, the the problem that you you kind of identify, I think, is is a real one. So, we all we've also done some research um, here in in the Netherlands, where we. Um, we we look at people who become unemployed and we look at we look at how they search for new jobs for new work and um w- one of the things that um happens so we, we we kind of collaborated with the public employment service um and what the public employment service does is it 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 tries to it's an online platform and it tries to um collect data from, from the job seeker. So when, when someone becomes unemployed, she has to um, kind of, you know, give information to the platform. She enrolls and she says, oh, I, I have this many years of experience doing this and that. And, um, and of course you also tell her, so, so you also tell the platform what your um, education level is, et cetera. And, um, what we then do is we look at, so imagine you are a, um, I don't know, a cleaner who becomes unemployed. Uh, so your previous occupation was cleaner. Then what we see, so the platform also asks people, you know, what, what job, what new job would you prefer? And um, then often what we see is that if you have been a cleaner, you look for another job also in cleaning. Because that's what that's what you're used to, and and so you think, oh, these are my these are my skills, these are my competencies. So I, I look only for vacancies in cleaning. And what we find is that people they they in that way people search in a very narrow set of of occupations. Whereas if if you look at what they can really do, because we we ask them more than just the experience, we also ask them like you know. What are your competencies and you know can you do this and can you do that and so if you look at what what they can really do um and the tasks that that they can really do what you see is that they, they could also be easily employed in other occupations that require similar tasks like so so you know a cleaner might also be um a very good i don't know i mean it might, might also be a very good receptionist I, i'm just saying right so so um and so what we what we then try to do is so and this is increasingly done by by public employment services what they try to do is to suggest um 
vacancies that are not just so so you know online you can look at a list of vacancies and then there is an algorithm that suggests not only vacancies in cleaning but you can also the algorithm can also try to suggest vacancies in occupations such as receptionists that are you know for which these workers also have the competencies but they might not search among those those occupations and you know that's not a that's an alternative to training um, that that I think is is good work, but it, it's certainly remarkable how narrow people search. And you would also think, you know, one of the one of the big puzzles that we also um, are faced with is, you would think that you know with all the information that's available now online about vacancies and jobs that are. Um, you would think that people are, you know, better informed and you know can can find better ways to to um, to match with jobs, um, but that's that doesn't that's not necessarily that doesn't seem to be the case. So it seems that to be the case that it's it's not necessarily that people are these days are better informed, even though they have access to so many online platforms. So people search for jobs in a very specific way in a very narrow way and i think one alternative to training is to um, kind of try to make them aware of of, of uh, a broader um, search uh, and help them search more broadly uh, for, for jobs that they might not think of but that that they could actually do um, and so the training is is um it's 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 intriguing so and training is really important. So, so I don't want to kind of explain it away. I think it's it's really key. Um, you know, next to what universities do, I think training is absolutely uh, uh, fundamental to to incorporating the benefits of of technological progress, for example. So, if you think about, you know, someone has to invest in training. Someone has to pay for training. But in the labor market where there's a lot of flexibility in contracts it's not immediately clear who's going to invest in training because you know as an employer you might think well you know why am i going to invest in in training for this worker if she's going to be gone you know in a year's time yeah this is re really interesting i've never thought about it to this kind of detail and this really makes sense how we need to work on the structure a lot more another thing that we wanted to address is the current inflation crisis uh, we're hearing a lot of we're hearing a lot of the term of labor shortages, and central bank governors are asking firms not to increase wages for the fears that it will just further the inflation that is happening now. Could you explain what is a labor shortage and like how real it is and how much it is just a myth? So I uh, you know that that's that's not a great topic. So so um, I think that so today in the Netherlands and I guess in all advanced economies there is this this idea that uh, we have labor shortages uh, and at the same time because of the energy prices there is inflation um, and it's true. Like today I, I read in a newspaper that. Um, the, the employers don't want to kind of increase wages because they think that that will further even exacerbate inflation that we already have on top of you know the inflation we have because of rising um, 
energy prices. So, and of course, this, this kind of wage price spirals are, are something that we experienced in the 70s. And it's, it's, it's um, you know, that, that's going to kind of, you know, that, that period was a very recessionary period. Um, we don't want to go back there. Um, now, you, you, you asked a very interesting question when you said, is this, you know, is it real? Is it not real? If you think about it, the labor shortages, for example. Um, so I think that the, the labor shortages are, um, I mean, for sure, I mean, they're, they're, there's a shortage of, of, of workers in some sectors. Uh, like, you know, there is a shortage of um, baggage handlers in, in, at the airport. Um, I read last week where there is a shortage of, of train conductors. Um, that uh, is kind of like a combination of, I think, the, the, what happened in the pandemic. And kind of, you know, when, when labor demand fell and now labor demand is rising. So, you know, when labor demand, labor demand is rising, it always needs a bit of time before you know, these jobs or these vacancies are filled again. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, you know, and so, so the labor shortage, I think, is, is in part temporary because of the, the kind of the pandemic that we've had. It could also be in part structural. Um, but, you know, let's, let's kind of, you know, there is a labor shortage. It's, it's, you know, it, 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 it might not be as severe in, in 12 months' time as it is now. But, and um, you also mentioned inflation. There's inflation for sure. But I'm not entirely sure whether the argument that, that is sometimes made that, you know, these two, like, like the wage price spiral, whether there's a big risk of, of that happening. Um, if you, for example, look at um, the Netherlands, um, collective agreements have, have, have not really kept pace with um, kind of like, you know, inflation and, and um, so that if anything, there's been wage moderation in the past here in the Netherlands. Um, and also, you know, we also have to think about Look, if you look at the, the wage increases um, for low-wage workers, whether that's such a bad thing, you know, even if it would result in more inflation, which I don't think it will. But so you know, the fact that we now have labor shortages in, you know, say, baggage handlers in, at, at the airport, you know, why is it such a bad thing, given that these are low-wage jobs, often done by migrants, inflexible contracts? Why is it such a bad thing that their wages would go up? And you know, it's just you know, there's more competition for these workers, and so their wages should go up, or their, their kind of their protection should go up, or, or non-wage attributes should should increase. Um, why is that such a bad thing? I mean, maybe maybe you know, that's that's that reduction in inequality, bottom end inequality, is 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 what competition does, and and it's good. Um, even if it's, you know, for the economy as a whole, if it would result in, in higher inflation, which, which I doubt, right? So, so I, I don't think that um, if we pay our, our um, baggage handlers a couple of euros more, that that's necessarily uh, such a big, that, that that's having a big impact on inflation. So I would think, you know, 
the labor shortages, if they're real in low wage sectors, let there be increases in wages. I think that's only beneficial for, for, for the labor market and society. Um, and I don't expect that to, to have a big impact on, on inflation. So I, I, I don't, on that, I'm not on the employer side and, and their new, and their quote this morning in the newspapers that we should not increase wages. Okay, so the previous questions have been all global issues and, and things like that. But this is a personal question that's coming from me. I just wrote my um, honors microeconomics exam yesterday morning. And um, thank you. I went and, uh, and, and studied, I, I went to study economics because I, I like talking about these things. I like talking about how labor markets need to evolve. I like how, I like talking about how like, you know, looking into the future, we can make sure that we're all better off and our societies are structured in a way that everyone is prosperous and standards of living are, are improving. But when I was preparing for that exam, I was, you know, drawing Edgeworth boxes, deriving marginal rates of transformations for economies that only have two goods, people that where there's only two competitors in a, in a, in, you know, in, in an Edgeworth box where you're trading for two goods. And I just can't help but thinking how detached from reality this all seems. I can't tell if my professor is like making these things up. They just seem completely unrealistic and, and detached from detached from reality. And, and, and I'm going to ask you if, if, you believe that this is just, you know, the fundamentals that you have to learn in order to derive sort of future models that are more accurate and more um, closely linked with the world, or if we should be working backwards and, and, you know, which is my opinion, in which we should talk about real world things and then explain the theories that explain those things rather than going theory first and empirical um, data second. So. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on uh, on on that? That, that? That's 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 such a super interesting question. So I uh, I, I agree with you that um, so I, I that we should start from you know a problem that we care about, and then um, you know you can sociologists will have you know their take on it, um, and as economists, I think we also need. Uh, models and, and models not necessarily like mathematical models but at least a consistent way to analyze a problem so so that you know you, you I mean models are all meant to um, make sure that we we can analyze a problem in in an in kind of internally consistent logical way um, and I think one of the, the 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 challenges that economics has you you kind of Express it much better than I can is that we we are a very in the social sciences we are a very mathematically oriented science and it's very easy for 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 lecturers and professors to hide behind behind the, the mathematics and say look guys this is an equation it is what it is uh, deal with it um, whereas you know I think it's important to and also kind of loop back to, okay, so but what, what does that mean intuitively? And what does it say about kind of like the, the real world problem that, that we're, we're started off with? And, and that, that's not always easy to do. So when I, so I teach a course labor economics um, and so I kind of, I start with the competitive model, supply demand model, and then I also throughout in, in the course, in, in, 
um, throughout the lectures, I kind of move away from the competitive model and I also do discrimination and unions and, 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 and whatnot. But then, you know, students always tell me, oh no, it's a third year bachelor of course. So they, they, you know, they've seen supply demand before. Say, oh no, not again, the competitive model. We're not interested in the competitive model because it's just so boring and it's just so abstract. It's just supply demand. But then I tell them, look guys, you know, next year you're gonna be, uh, imagine that you're all gonna start a job somewhere and you'll all be earning different wages. So, you know, there's no reason why you should earn the same wage. You'll all have different jobs. You all earn a different wage. Why do you think that that is? So why, you know, imagine that um, Emily, you earn twice as much as, as, um, as Brian earns. Why do you think that's the case? Uh, and then they have all sorts of, of uh, theories about why that might be. And then I say, look, the competitive model as a starting point is also an explanation why you might earn different wages. It's because the competitive model is, is basically saying that you earn what you contribute in terms of revenue to the firm. And, you know, that's different from, you know, you earning a different wage from someone else because you're, you're, you're um, a man or women or because you're black or white or because you're in a unionized firm versus a non-unionized firm or a minimum wage job versus a non-minimum wage job. And so the competitive model is, is a very specific way to explain why wages are what they are. They're not the only explanation, but I think they're an important one. And if you talk about, you know, where do wages come from? Uh, and, and you start from that and, and you kind of see the competitive model, which is a very boring abstract model if you just do supply demand. But if you say, look, the competitive model is just one way to think about where wages come from. Um, I think that's, that's, that makes it a lot more kind of tangible for students to think about competitive model versus other types of explanations. And that's how I try to make it a lot more digestible for, for students. And, and, um, and I don't think we do that enough in economics. So, um, and that's also why I, and it's also difficult, right? So I think teaching, um, the easiest courses to teach are PhD courses because you know you can hide behind the math and you just show them the integrals and whatnot, um, and you tell them figure out the intuition yourself um, or solve the integral. Um, what's much more difficult is is often the introductory courses, also often to non-economists and explain to non-economists what economics is all about, and then as a lecturer you're forced to leave all the technicalities behind and kind of focus on the intuition. Um, and so I totally agree with you, uh, Vishwa, and I think that's, it's, it's, it's a challenge that as an economics profession, I think we need to, we need to deal with still. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hose, for uh, this lovely conversation. And um, definitely, your explanation of, of why we teach the competitive model first is going to provide some motivation as I go into future semesters. Uh, once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was my pleasure.
that is the end of episode 16. We really hope that you enjoyed it. Make sure to leave your opinions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes in our comments or just write to us, DM us. Uh, also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We have Instagram and TikTok where we post clips and excerpts from our show. And see you next week.